Hi everyone, welcome back to the Biopharma Dispatch podcast. I'm delighted to be joined again by Felicity McNeil, PSM, who is the co-founder and chair of Better Access Australia. They're a really interesting advocacy group that's having a big impact and I think we're going to hear more about that in the next weeks, months, not sure. We're going to have a chat about the National Medicines Policy Review following the stakeholder webinar late last week that was led by the uh, expert committee. I think uh, our publication made our view pretty clear about that that, that <laughs> webinar on Friday, and we're going to follow it up with a conversation. I wanted to bring in Felicity, as you, who, as you know, everyone knows, is a former uh, senior deep Department of Health official, and uh, I think brings a, 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 a pretty unique perspective to this discussion. So we're going to talk about that, the webinar what it says, what we should read into that, and, and also more broadly what it says about Malays, to put it politely, afflicting decision-making in this country. So, Felicity, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Great to be with you again. So, the good news is this document is so good, having been written in the 1990s, but apparently it is so good, we don't need a vision. It's only a refresh. We don't need a rewrite. It's all pretty good. We just need to add a couple of things, maybe change the definition of medicine, Talk about climate change because it's not enough that we get lectured about the price of our medicines now. Now, now apparently we take our medicines. It's not just expensive to the government, but it's destroying the environment. And I'm sure Qantas will add that to their app, and you'll be able to offset that. <laughs> you'll be able to too. offset the, Yeah, maybe maybe we get our scripts filled. We should be able to offset the the, the, <laughs> the climate impact of our medicines because that's pretty much where we're at. And priority patient groups. Now, all of these, I'm, we're not dismissing the legitimacy of these issues, but but the idea that the most important document in Australian medicines policy does not need a vision or an overarching objective, that I lost it at that point. Look, Paul, uh, thanks for the chance to talk about this. And I think when we talked about the uh, Zimmerman report, I expressed the same concerns, which is that when you have 30 recommendations that effectively are 110 without a clear vision or priority where do you go? And we look like heading down the same path with the national medicines policy. And that's, that's of considerable concern to me on multiple levels. First of all, I sat through that uh, process uh, webinar, as I, I understand that you have information on it as well too. And I watched a lot of slides telling me what people had heard on that review committee. Um, I'm curious as to what they were listening for. And I guess, as you know, and thank you for your support, and we've been shouting from the rooftops, consistent with the Zimmerman inquiry, where are these submissions? I want to see what 150 organisations and individuals said. I want to collaborate with them and I want to be able to um, form my own view on when I'm told that, you know, nine out of 100 stakeholders in a family feud um survey said <laughs> so it was like it was like family feud it yeah. was we surveyed australia's top 100 patient organizations and industry organizations this was the most common answer and they said do we need a vision statement apparently not um that's the challenge for me this this has this has transparency and governance as part of its terms of reference i can't calibrate i can't contribute as a patient and an advocate as to what on earth is going on here, and I, d I don't understand where the weight and the benefit is. I don't understand why we can't have a vision statement. I mean, you and I have talked before about the preventive health strategy. It's taken two years. It's been a massive consultation process. And you know what? The first thing on the front page is the vision strategy, which is valuing health before illness, living well for longer. And from that, every other strategy and priority comes from there. 
Yeah, because it's it, the national medicines policy is really a national medicine strategy. I think it was described as a policy document for reasons to do with history. But the problem is we're not going to be able to have any of these conversations. I mean, I, I you know I think back to the webinar. And one of the one of the better moments in that webinar was Professor Sansom talking about the de- the challenge, the technical challenge of defining a medicine. What do we mean by medicine? He talked about the complexity of it, the legal definition, but then he talked about the technical definition. And I think I, my takeaway from that was well, well, that alone is a discussion that's going to take more than a few months. And look, you know, it was great to hear on that webinar that the review process itself has been extended by two months, a bit like it was really exciting to find out by word of mouth that you could get an extension on the deadline to submit um, <laughs> for two weeks. So I guess we've got an exponential That's growth right. area, which I'm sure the PBAC right, yeah. wouldn't <laughs> like to see in the, uh, the cost-effectiveness of a medicine. But um, it, it is. I mean, Professor Sampson's conversation was one of the most compelling during that webinar mm-hmm. because it was something that is a fundamental challenge to what people and what industry are experiencing today, which is where does my product go? Does it go through MSAT? Does it go through PBAC? Does it go somewhere else altogether? Does it matter where it's delivered? Am I being defined by law? We, we need to cast all that aside. I think that's what I really took from that. And I guess it's a conversation you and I have had before. This is the problem. The discussion paper and everything that was put together on this focuses on the HTA process, that's actually not what strategy and policy is about. You, The reason you need a vision statement, the reason you lift up is because you don't talk about PBAC or pathways or evaluations or HTA. You talk about what is the principle for access to health technologies in Australia. When you say that, you can come up with all those how-tos later, but we've got to stop talking about the how-to as if that's policy or strategy. It is not. It is process. Yeah, it's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, what we've got is a, a national medicines policy administered by a health technology assessment area in a government department. And I think you at Better Access Australia have articulated really well the need to get this policy out of that area and into population health or another area just so that it can have a a different lens, a policy lens. Absolutely. Yes, we did say that. And, you know, as you've referenced, you know, in, in other conversations, I used to run that division and I don't say that with any other reason other than to say it's a very busy division and it is primarily a process division about actually getting medicines and technologies onto the MBS and the PBS. When you want to do policy and you want to do it well, you need to put that in an area that is deliberately focused on seeing all the linkages and breaking down the silos. You know, this this policy isn't just being consulted with with, you know, pharmaceutical companies and the odd medical technology company. This needs to be consulted with with state governments, with hospitals, with blood products. Everybody needs to be involved in this and everybody needs to be given multiple chances to contribute to it. And you know what? This the industry is so used to a seventeen week PBAC cycle, they kind of think it's fine to have a six month NMP review process. This is not This is a fundamental document that sets the standard for our approach to so many things in this country. It held us in good stead for many years because it took the time to do it the first time around. The current preventive health strategy, it's been going for two years. Yeah, well, this this document will reverberate once it's in place, once it's adopted. But let's, let's go back to the genesis of this review. It was Professor Andrew Wilson, PBAC chair in 2017, I think, who said, we need to go back to first principles here and think about what we're trying to do because 
he expressed a concern that there was a stakeholder-driven piecemeal approach to policy. I'm sorry, but the, the irony of this review is that it's confirming his critique. It, the, the irony of the review is it's confirming his argument for the review in the first place because it's incredibly piecemeal. What we're going to do is not worry about overarching principle or vision that actually sets 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 our objective for what we're trying to do here. What we're going to do is make a couple of changes, definition, talk about climate change because there's probably a government policy that requires them to incorporate climate change now, and priority patient groups again. That's important, but even those things would be much better dealt with in the context of a, of a vision statement. Absolutely. It, it goes to the concept of opening this up as something about being more than the PBS. And I think that's the thing that because that has become such an important focus for access to medicines, and I understand why, but with the increasing pressure of things needing to be accessed through the MBS, through blood, everything like that, um, we heard on the, the webinar uh, Leanne Wells from the Consumers Health Forum talk about, well, where are complementary medicines? You know, we'd say where are over-the-counter medicines? We'd say where was pharmacy in this conversation? Where was the, the community service obligation? This is so big, let's give it the respect it deserves. Where are clinicians? Where are the scientists that are coming up with technology? I mean, this is the, this is the missing piece. And I think the, the, the discussion, the webinar hit its nadir when people were told the committee won't be accepting any more stakeholder submissions. So they are going to present... Their, their report or their new document, their new policy to stakeholders on another webinar, presumably, and there'll be no consultation on it. I, I mean, it was just disgraceful. There's, there's really no other word for it. The When was the review of pharmacy remuneration and regulation? When oh, was that? 2015 to 2017. 2015, so it was two years. There was a genuine discussion paper, not, not the... Fake. I mean, there needs to be the the competition regulator or something. There needs to be some sort of regulation around government misusing terms. And and this was not a discussion paper. It was a revised policy with well, what it was. It was them saying the government saying or the Department of Health saying this is what we think the new medicines policy should be. What do you think about what we think the new medicines policy should be? It was that sort of consultation. It wasn't consultation at all on the issues afflicting this policy at the moment. The chair of the expert committee raised this issue of tension. One of the first things he said during that webinar was that the current policy creates this tension between, you know, on, on between safety, quality, and efficacy of medicines. And I'm sorry, there is no tension on those issues. They are universally accepted by every single stakeholder. It is the least contested area of health policy that medicines need to be safe, high quality and effective in this country. And there's unanimity in a commitment to ensuring that. Now, I think what he was actually saying is that there's a tension around the government's willingness to pay. Yes, I think Professor Kidd um, could have spent a bit more time reading the submissions and even the Zimmerman report itself, which actually acknowledged from multiple stakeholders what a fantastic job the TGA does and how things have improved since the Sampson review in 2015. Yes. Yeah. Um, and where there's, there's still opportunities, but where there's been really great strides made. It's absolutely right. It's timeliness to access. We've had this conversation before that the tension is when does government want to pay and stop using processes to, let, to delay actually making that investment? 
And that's the problem. As you know, we've said 820 days between registration and subsidy is the average in this country. Well, that's not, and that's not a stakeholder tension. That's a tension created by the governments by an unwillingness to pay. Exactly. An unwillingness to pay that has evolved and grown greater over the past 20 years. And that's the tension. And, and that's a tension completely of the government's own making. And they don't need to change the national medicines policy to fix that. But, but I think you and I probably both know that a, revision, a vision state that talks about access, that talks about new technologies, that's going to put pressure on the government. And, and they don't want that. Completely. And I guess, I, you know, I, I, found, I found that um, articulation of the tension to almost be a little bit of hogwash when you consider that reading again the Zimmerman inquiry, listening to the way patients grab on to access to clinical trials in this country as mm. the way to get the best access. They accept the risks, they accept the safety, they accept the profiles. They're willing to be part of a trial to get access to a medicine and they understand the risks of that. So to characterise the tension in the national medicines policy being about safety and when I access something... Um, is probably the most egregious representation of what's really going on in this country right now that I've, that I've read. Yeah, and clinical trials is, is access for some. Yep. Access to an unproven medicine. Yep. An investigative candidate. Now, it's great that we get clinical trials in Australia for a lot of reasons. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's an economic contribution. It's, it builds expertise. Uh, and and it does. It does mean that some patients get access to investigative candidates, but it also means... Many patients think they're getting access to investigative candidates and they're not because that's the nature of clinical trials. It is no substitute for actual funded access to treatment. But let's let's take a step back because what to me, that's that this is the issue is that we had the parliamentary inquiry over four hundred and fifty pages of recommendations for change, but not once did they say we got a problem here. Now I think. Uh, Mike Freelander, the deputy chair of that committee, corrected that in the parliament a few days after when he said the government needs to adopt a vision yes. for access. And I think that was a prescient statement yes, uh, and incredibly thoughtful and accurate and simple. This is something that we can do and that, and, and that, we, that we should be doing. But, but how are we going to bring all of this together? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned now about the, the fate of this review that it, it, is, it is almost inconceivable to me that the minister receives this at the end of March and then let's, let's say there's an election in May, which means he will have two weeks to consider this review and endorse it if he is, before, it go, before the government goes into caretaker. Now, I know, I know you know, you've got the pre-caretaker, which is where you know the departments generally check out from the minister a little bit, and then you, you've got the the formal caretaker, where the minister cannot make those sorts of decisions. And I I desperately hope, I desperately hope that the committee on this review actually push back against this end of March timeline, because I think if they push it through, and if the minister endorses it after what has been a laughable consultation, well, it's not been a consultation process. Uh, there's been no transparency around the submissions. We have a management consulting firm developing a stakeholder submission report, which is like something out of the Soviet Union, as far as I'm concerned. Is that we need <laughs> we need we need transparency around these submissions so we can calibrate. Like they 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 presented stakeholder views on this call, but we have no way of calibrating that. 
We have none. No, we don't. And so I just, I'm sorry, I can't, ex- I just can't accept it until we see the submissions and we can go through the detail and find out who are these people who've argued against the vision. Who are these people who've said, yeah, well, you know, timely access is okay, but we really need to maintain our focus on cost effectiveness. Yeah, HTA is way more HTA, important than like, actually getting can, the drug. Can, 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 who's, who's argued that? I think we've got a right to know because we were told that there have been stakeholders who've said that, right? So so besides the Department of Health, who else has said that? And I think we need to know. We do. And, it's, it's, and who's getting what weight? So, you know, was it three stakeholders or was it 50 stakeholders? And why does one opinion or one group of opinions matter more than others. Um, like I said, you know, Paul, we've we've been advocating really hard and thank you to all the organisations that have publicly made their submissions available and drawn that to our attention so that we can put it in one space so that the community, not just those in the know, but anybody who wants to know what's going on in this space, it's a public health system. Yeah, well, we forget that, don't we? It's, it's not a, a system owned by the government and a few other people. It's actually a public health program owned by 26 million people who live in this country. It is. And it's, you know, we sat on that webinar and we had a lot of conversations about patient-centric and patients want this and people want that. So I guess my challenge to the current minister, and but in particular to this committee, is that the national medicines policy from the late 1990s was a legacy that helped us get to a certain point in time. Now they have a chance to create another legacy. What is their legacy going to be for this? Because when this policy is in place... That's it. It gets weaponized by everybody, whether it's the government, whether it's the bureaucracy, whether it's stakeholders. That becomes everything we reference. And well, so what are they going to do? Yeah, I, I don't think this policy – on the current pathway, given the way this review has been done, no one's going to take this document seriously when it's released. Not in the same way the, the, the current the – the, the document that's been in place for 20 years has been committed to and adhered to over the past two decades, no one's got this document won't last any any time because of the of the way it's been reviewed. If it gets rushed through and adopted before the election, I, I would be that that's almost the worst thing that could happen. And for a minister, the incumbent who is so fixated on the PBS, who talks about the PBS a lot, who has a stated commitment to it, who mentioned it as one of the key things in his retirement speech in the parliament. His, his legacy requires this review to be sensible. And, w- and we're not getting that. What, what we're getting is this highly curated, narrow discussion. And I really hope the committee members who are – they're not – they're serious people. They are. And I guess it, it's something we, we often talked about in my really dark days in the Department of Finance – as well as in the Department of Health, is that there is no greater part of the health system that touches every single Australian. So whether you have a pharmaceutical that is prescribed, that is subsidised, that is over-the-counter, that is a complementary medicine, every person in this country understands what a medicine access policy is. And yet... 25.6 million people would have no idea that there's a national medicines policy that will guide their access to over-the-counters, to safety, to efficacy, to subsidy over the next 20 years. And I think that's incumbent on this committee and it's incumbent on this minister and it's incumbent on whoever is next in government. Give people a chance to genuinely own their health system. Yeah, because they pay for it and they own it. And... It's it's deeply cynical 
what has happened with this review thus far. The presentation of it at, on that webinar was appalling. The, the scripted nature of it was just outrageous. The mans, like just the mansplaining <laughs> of I don't know if there's another word for it, but 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 the mansplaining of this is what you thought. Well, how do we know that's what? No, that's what you think we thought. And I I I really hope the committee have an opportunity to reflect on maybe there's a another way we could do this to say that they're going to issue their their report or their final policy and that it won't be consulted on. I mean, I I cannot believe when those people sit around that table that they would think that's a good idea. That is clearly a very bad idea. These are these are highly experienced long-term participants in the health system and I guess at Better Access Australia we I'll also put it on the record as we did in our other consultations. Be mindful that there's multiple generations coming up here who have no idea what you're talking about and yet you're <laughs> deciding their future. That set aside, these people have so much experience and ideas and that was the hard thing with the webinar. The webinar was being talked at and yet it's when we talk with. Yeah, the whole thing has been this is what we think. Tell us what you think of what we think. And now it's going to be, this is what we think. We don't want to hear what you think. I mean, that's basically what was said on that webinar, is that there would be no more stakeholder consultation. This is a national medicines policy. It is the most important document in Australian medicines policy. It is the framework for decision-making. It will have consequences. And we're getting the Marie Antoinette again, which is... (laughs) It better be gluten free for me, Paul. <laughs> so we're getting the Marie Antoinette, which is, well, well, we'll talk to you when we want to talk to you, and we don't want to talk to you anymore. And the next webinar, we're just going to lecture you on what we've decided. I'm sorry. At what point do people on these committees just say enough? We're not we're not going to do this anymore. And one of the transparency points, because I know they are espousing transparency, which is the ultimate irony. But we need to see the submissions, and we need to see what instructions they've been given. Yes. So what are the what are the, what's their remit? I, I want to know what their remit is. I, I'm interested in that too, Paul, because when we were part of the the consultation sessions, there was discussion about the fact that there will be the NMP review, and the minister has also given them permission to actually make other recommendations on matters as they see fit. I have no idea what that is. I have no idea what it affects, and it wasn't raised in the webinar either. And did they just raise that in the what? consultations with us, or did they raise that with other people? So. I guess. My well, isn't there one recommendation that we can't get this done that quickly? We need to t- take time and invest in this process. And that's where you need to learn. That's why we keep advocating for this to go to one of the policy divisions because the reality is that those who work in policy know that policy is not a once-off, tick-and-flick consultation very quickly. You get one chance to comment and then we all run away. It's an iterative process and we need to give the committee and we need to give the policy a chance to go through that properly. You know, you know my, my, my real worry here is that stakeholders are getting trained now is that this would this sort of process would be unacceptable five or ten years ago now it's this is what a this is what a consultation process is and i'm sorry it's not and stakeholders for those of you who are listening out there do not accept this because the principle of co-design which jane holton talks about every other day is that i think the probably the longest serving secretary of the health department uh she talks about the principle of co-design when it comes to policy and what we're getting now is just things dumped on people 
And now we're going we're to come up with this thing. We're going to dump it on you. I and mean, you've seen it in pharma. You've seen it in medical devices now. We're going to dump this on you. And then we're going to consult you on, you know, after we've dumped it on you. And so you're spending one, two, three years explaining to government why something might not work or might, it might be unimplementable. And it's a mindset that is not a proper policy mindset. So I don't really don't know what's going on here. No, and like I said, I, I, I think that when you are running a process and you've got a stakeholder group that's all used to everything's based by specific times and you get one time in and one time out, um, I'd like to remind everybody who's listening, this is not the way a lot of other health policy is done and it's certainly <laughs> not the way that a lot of general government sector policy is done. No. I've worked across multiple portfolios. Um, I continue to liaise in areas of the disability scheme and I'd like to remind everybody, and there's many patient groups right now listening to you, who have contributed to both and will see the difference. Yeah, we can't accept this. This is not right. It's completely contrary to the whole reason for this review in the first place because it's completely piecemeal. And and I just I just hope we we have to hope that stakeholders we have to hope that the committee push back on this idea that this is going to get shoved through ministerial decision making in the final weeks before an election campaign an election which would be a complete disaster. For medicine's policy in this country. Yes, to quote your words, Paul, your religion shouldn't be HTA, your religion should be public health. Well, just, I'm 100% sure Moses did not bring down the national medicine's policy in place of the Ten Commandments. But anyway, <laughs> we'll see. Felicity, thank you for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. I think we'll probably do another, another one before the end of the year because we're doing them weekly now. We need to wrap up what has been an incredibly interesting year and uh, then we go into 2022. So thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Have a good night.